Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 501st show of ROI. Our noted guest for today's show is Dr. Paulette Steves, Associate Professor in Sociology and Anthropology and Chair of the Geography, Geology, and Land Management Program at Algoma University, who is going to talk to us about her book, The Indigenous Paleolithic of Western Hemisphere. Joining us in the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Jay Swords and Rick Sweet. To begin with, we'd like to welcome Dr. Paulette to the show. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We call this first segment of the show Fadruk Danarin, and it is our goal to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information on what Paleolithic means and what time frame does it cover? Well, the Paleolithic is basically the time before 10,000 years before present, and as far back, I believe, as 2.6 million years before present. So it covers the last glacial maximum and there's been at least, oh, 24 different um, glacial and interglacial times in the last two million years, which is important to our understanding of viable migration routes for humans and mammals. Okay. So um, if you were going to, let's say, start off a class for, as we talk with the people at the University World, um, Freshman 101, and you were going to say this is how we're going to start examining this topic matter. What would you start off with, if I may ask? Well, for understanding um, what's in my book, for understanding the initial peopling of the Western Hemisphere, now known as the Americas, we need to start off with how we got to the current understanding that's in popular uh, social media and educational tech. So, I would start out by discussing the history of anthropology and how it's written about the history of Indigenous people. Um, My book really challenges that and pushes back on the anthropological and archaeological status quo because most people believe that uh, Indigenous people have been in the Western Hemisphere for 10 to 12,000 years, but that was based on... um, bias and colonization in anthropology and archaeology controlling the historical record of indigenous people and their links to the land. So we kind of have to go through all that and understand the history of uh, archaeology itself and how it's been taught before we can discuss uh, the evidence in my book, which is there are literally thousands of sites that are older than 12,000 years before present in the Western Hemisphere. Okay. So, um, if you could give our listeners a little more in detail, you brought out the point there's many more sites that are past the 10,000-year kind of um, marker that uh, when class is taught, as a matter of fact, I'm kind of teaching it now in my class, um, that that's kind of our so-called starting point. What are some sites that are more noted that totally contradict the, um, as you kind of described it, biased starting point that has been created in the past? Wow, there's so many. One of the more recent sites is what they call the White Sands Footprints uh, site in New Mexico. So that's a site where there are human footprints uh, embedded in, in, um, in the clay, in the hardened clay. 
And there's also a lot of footprints of extinct species. So when you find this, you understand, well, these people were here at the same time as some of these extinct species that we know have been extinct for over 13, 14,000 years. And then they dated the site, and it dated to oh, between 20 and 23,000 years before present. So when you see that, it's not just one site. This is where the people were walking. Where did they live? Where did they fish? Where did they hunt? There's got to be many more sites in that area. So that's one of the more recent discoveries. There's a lot of sites like Pedra Ferrada in Brazil, which is actually now a uh, protected archaeological park area with numerous sites that date from 12,000 to 50,000 years before present. And that's a site that's had numerous archaeologists work on it for decades. So there's a ton of evidence at that site, everything from hearth to rock paintings to stone tools, everything we find at archaeological sites. In the Americas, there's a few older sites that are really, really uh, good candidates. One is uh, the Topper site in uh, South Carolina, that has dated to 50,000 years before present. And another one would be um, the Lucina site, which is dated to 22,000 years before present. That's in south, uh, southwest Nebraska. And there are a number of sites in southern California and central Mexico that date from 50,000 years to 200,000 years before present. So when you're looking at all these sites, you look for a regional area. Because you know that people didn't just, you know, drop out of a plane. They had to walk there. And everywhere they walked or lived or they interacted, they left their signs in the soil. They left their stories in archaeological sites. So there's a lot, a lot of sites in North and South America, both, that predate between, you know, 12,000 and 200,000 years. Most of them between 12,000 and about 60,000 years before present. Okay, so are we still under the same premise then? Because you have pretty much corrected everything that I've been taught in the last 20-some years. Um, These um, individuals, they still cross the land bridge from Asia to North America. And if that is the case, what are the earliest points, I would assume, further north, uh, if that premise is still accurate? Well, that's one way. And the thing is, we don't know. We don't know how people came and went between Eastern and Western Hemisphere. We do know that there were at least 24 times in the last uh, 2 million years when there was a land connection that was ice-free between the Eastern and Western Hemisphere across what they call the Bering Land Area. We know that the continental shelf was dry land, and the distance between the edge of the continental shelf across ice or water was much shorter Um, 8,000 and 20,000 years ago than it is today. And so that's really the thing. That's the starting point is we don't know. And if we don't uh, keep an open mind and look at the evidence we have, we will never know. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. Find out what song is airing on KALA now, or a song that recently aired. It's all at the KALA website. Find out the artist, song title, and album source. It's on the KALA website. Find out what's playing on 88.5 FM, 106.1 FM, and The Stinger now at KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. 
Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the second segment of our show, which is referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our noted guest for today is Dr. Paulette Steves, Associate Professor in Sociology and Anthropology and Chair of the Geography, Geology, and Land Management Program of the Algoma University. And we're here to talk about her book, The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere. Our history buffs for today's show are Jay Swords and Rick Sweet. And Jay, why don't you start us off? Hi, Paulette. Talk to us a little bit about the kinds of evidence that you look for as an archaeologist um, when you have, you, when you think you have a, a new site. What kinds of things are you are you hoping to find, and and how do you sort of manage that site? Because I think we we all kind of know about archaeology, but I don't know that a lot of us know how it actually works and, and what you're looking for when you're at a site. Well, there's a, um, a, a set of standards that are all archaeologists uh, use, that are trained to use, to get experience in using before they do digs. And I'd just like to mention that a lot of the sites in my database, this is a, a lot of archaeology. This took 100 years to collect. So, you know, we're looking at sites that were excavated in the 1930s and sites that were excavated this year. So this is a huge collection of sites across time. But archaeologists, um, really good archaeology is done in a holistic manner. So we're not just looking for things. We're looking to understand the deposition of the soil. So, for instance, at the Lacina site in southwest Nebraska, we know that in that area of southwest Nebraska, there's a certain type of soil that was windblown. It's called Pleistocene lust. It's a very soft uh, soil. So we know that uh, because it's been dated in, in, in a lot of areas in, in that area, we know that Pleistocene loss at the top might be um, around 10,000 years old, but at the bottom it might be as much as 22 to 24,000 years old. So if I'm looking at a cliff face and I see uh, stone tools are, are broken bone, that humans broke eroding out of a, a cliff face at the bottom of Pleistocene lust. I know I'm looking at a site that might likely date to around 22,000 years before present. So there's a lot we're looking at. The soil is very important. The paleo environment is very important. You need a lot of uh, information and background from a lot of areas, and it's a team effort. So one of the first things I would do if I'm excavating a site is I would um, – create a partnership with a geologist that was very well informed of the geology and the paleo, the old geology of the area that has a good understanding of the soils. And then in a lot of areas, you had lakes during the Pleistocene that aren't there today. A lot of really large lakes. And people don't realize it, but imagine the plains of Kansas being covered in small little paleo lakes. So little shallow lakes all over the Kansas Plains was a very different landscape. And so every one of those paleo lake basins, which are now dry, that I've ever excavated around has had uh, remains of extinct mammals like mammoths and camelids because this is where they came to drink water. And so having an understanding of the paleo environment, the paleo species, um, the plants from the Pleistocene, all of these things that are going to show up in the archaeological record. Those are some of the things we look for besides uh, stone tools or, 
our hearts are fire pits. Rick. Paulette, uh, since you're talking about uh, so many uh, uh, glaciation periods, I, I think you, you said um, 25, 24 times, something like that. Have you been able to identify and work any uh, early sites in uh, northern Canada uh, uh, also along within what is now Alaska? There's a lot of sites in Alaska. So there's been a, you know, a team of archaeologists across the last 80 years that have focused their attention on Alaska and the Yukon. And there's um, many, many sites there. There's also a new technology they can use now called said DNA. So we're able to extract uh, mammalian and human biomarkers from soil. So we don't even need an archaeological site. Now, paper came out recently where they had extracted um, co- uh, soil cores from a lake bed in Alaska, and they did find human biomarkers, and that soil level dated to 32,000 years before present. So there's a lot of uh, really, really good sites in the Yukon. There's also part of our understanding of uh, humans and where they migrated to and went during the Pleistocene is understanding uh, our, what I call our four-legged relations, understanding the mammals. So there's been a lot of really good paleontological research done that shows that uh, there was a migration corridor for mammoths and mastodons that went through northern Alaska. We know that camelids were on Ellesmere Island. So having an understanding of the Pleistocene species is important, and that's part of how uh, the evidence of viable migration. So if people are going to migrate from, you know, say, present-day Alaska to present-day Asia, a hundred thousand years ago, we need to understand if that was possible. Was there a glacier? Was there not a glacier? Was there a land connection during that time? And we get a lot of that information from our uh, from paleontologists. So we know that like um, camelids arose in the Americas to get to the eastern hemisphere, they needed to walk along a viable landmass where there was food, where there was water, and where they could easily cross. And it's the same with uh, horses and saber-toothed cats. They also arose in the Americas. So from that paleontological record, we understand that they migrated to the area we call today Asia, and they needed a landmass to do that. So looking at a holistic picture of archaeology and understanding when mammals came and went from the paleontological record is really important. And for every uh, every site we find, we find evidence of the human use of these Pleistocene mammal species. So there's a certain way that you can break a mammoth bone. A short-faced bear, as big as they were, couldn't get their mouth around a mammoth femur and break it. Um, but a human with a with a boulder, a small boulder, could bash open that bone and extract the marrow or use the bone for stone tools. So we find this evidence at um, archaeological sites, and we can identify the species, which quite often helps us to identify the time frames. And then, of course, that mammal bone can be dated. Okay. Um, of course, you know in many parts of the world, even today, that there are animals take massive migration treks uh, for, as you said, for that they can find food and water, and it still occurs. Uh, we always have this image that, um, as you pointed out, that humans hit 
North America 12,000 years ago, and then they made it to South America about 8,000 years ago, and it always sounds like they stopped there. Are there any records or signs where you're actually moving up and down the coast for seasonal reasons? Or was it like, you know, it's just there's constant migration everywhere? No, we have recently uh, gotten evidence of people being very sedentary, especially like in areas along coastal regions. So there's a site in South America where we know that humans um, stayed there for over uh, 10,000 years. So we know they were sedentary. So the whole story that archaeology has built up about the roaming uh, hunter-gatherers is a fallacy. Yes, there were people that did seasonal traveling. There were people that did seasonal migrations for hunting, for fishing, for gathering medicines. But people were sedentary. It takes a lot of energy, costs a lot of energy to constantly move all the time. And people had technologies for building um, homes in the Americas, just as early as some other areas of the world. In fact, some of the technologies we find in the Americas, like we find uh, mummies in uh, the Atacama Desert of Chile, those are the oldest processes of mummification in the entire world. They're thousands of years older than mummification from the pyramids. So people were very uh, technologically skilled in the Americas. And when we think about, um, you know, people coming and going, Another thing that people aren't aware of is that early humans were in northern Asia over 2 million years ago. Some of the oldest sites there date to 2.1 to 2.4 million years ago. So early hominins or early humans had walked, migrated from Africa to northern Asia over 14,000 kilometers as early as earlier than 2 million years ago. So we're supposed to believe that all the humans were very capable Uh, very good at migrating, very good at adapting to new environments. And they were in northern Asia over 2 million years ago. They didn't go, you know, a few hundred more kilometers or the 57 miles across the Bering landmass area until 12,000 years ago, when during that time there were miles and thousands of miles of very deep ice covering the land. It was not a viable migration route. When you look at the facts of what we're told to believe, they're uh, they're ludicrous. They make no sense. This is a huge anomaly. So if you have people on the Asian side of the Bering landmass at two million years ago, um, what's to say they didn't cross that landmass when when animals were migrating back and forth all that time? Why would we believe that? You know, humans could migrate that far. They were very capable. They were using water transport. Very early, some people say 60,000 to 100,000 years before present, humans were using open water transport. So we have humans using open water transport. We have a viable landmass migration route. But even though they'd walked 14,000 miles from Africa, they didn't bother going another short distance to reach North America. That's uh, uh, an issue. That's a problem that needs to be answered. Jay. Paulette, I'm interested if we've had this this migration that that takes place do we have any concept of whether we're looking at very similar um cultural or technological um uh, developments in uh the new world as opposed to the to the old in other words how quickly or do we have you know what kind of evidence do we have that 
ad- adaptations were taking place, um, where old skills simply transplanted to to new areas as people migrated and settled. Um, you know, what kind of connections do we have going back and forth? Um, none. So archaeologists have spent thousands of dollars trying to find uh, the precursor to what they call the Clovis tool. So the Clovis tool is a stone tool that has this beautiful flute out of the middle. Very beautiful, technological, very well-made, adaptable tool. And um, for years, archaeologists tried to find evidence of where did this tool come from, you know, because people brought it here, and people didn't bring it here. We know now that this tool was, um, this technology was invented, was first used in the southeastern part of the United States today. So people that that came here came into a land that was incredibly uh, diverse, incredibly ecologically diverse, had beautiful materials, a lot of volcanic materials that they used to make stone tools. And so they they now do see a little bit of similarity in one small area of the Middle East somewhere with, with some of the tools in North America. But also, let me clarify one thing, there's no such thing as the old world and the new world. There's one world, the whole world is the same age, and we don't yet have a full picture of human migrations on a global scale. So we can't say that one area is definitely, you know, way, 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 way older than another, because we're still answering those questions. And so I just say there's a world. There was human migrations on a global scale. And really, with science and technology in the last 20 years, we've gotten so much more better at um, finding out what what is left at these sites and what it means and we've you know we've been able to see that archaeologists used to say that uh homo erectus and neanderthal they never ever intermated they weren't the same species we know now that's completely wrong and that a lot of uh, contemporary people have at least two percent neanderthal dna so we've answered a lot of really great questions on uh human development and human evolution across time with the support of a lot of new sciences and new understandings. And so using those tools moving forward is really important. But understanding that humans were a global species, uh, you know, as early as two million years ago, early hominids were a global species, is really important to being open-minded to an understanding the development of human evolution. So the first initial peopling of the Americas, whether it was 24,000 years ago or 200,000 years ago, that's part of a global picture of human evolution. And so one of the big pieces of work in archaeology we need to do now is to compare technologies between the East and the West. And there was a a great um, faculty here doing work in Alberta. She was from I don't know, was it Ukraine? Uh, She was from one of the Eastern Bloc countries, and she found it absolutely astounding that they don't even train archaeological students in the Americas to recognize what we call Paleolithic tools, so what they would call the old world stone tools, right? Um, What are those technologies? There is another archaeologist here that worked in archaeology and worked in um, governmental, what we call cultural resource management in the States for for over 40 years, he had found a lot of sites that had uh, tools that looked like Lavoilis tools. So between 260 and 300,000 years old, we know this technology from uh, from the Eastern Hemisphere. He was afraid to say anything about finding all of these sites until he retired. 
now that he's retired, he's doing more research and publishing on it because he has found uh, these old Stone Age tools here in North America at a number of sites. So I think we're going to see a lot more in the next 10 years. And another thing people don't really understand is that this area of archaeology was called an area of academic suicide. It was a very dangerous area for archaeologists to publish about. If they found a site older than 12,000 years, they faced a lot of really um, vicious critique. Even Louis Leakey, the greatest paleontologist from South Africa, came and he excavated at the Calico site and said it was between 50,000 and 200,000 years old. That's a site in Southern California. And the American archaeologist immediately called him a drunken old man and, and really, you know, said terrible things they didn't need to say about him. This is, man was a professional, and he'd been working in this field his entire life. But anybody in North and South America that published on a site older than 12,000 years was viciously attacked by American archaeologists. So there was a political bias against linking people to the lands of the America earlier than 12,000 years ago. But, you know, when, when I started doing this research, I emailed Dr. Holan, who was the head archaeologist at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, and I asked him when I was a graduate student, do you know of any sites older than Clovis? And he said, well, I know of 10 sites, but don't tell anybody what you're studying. They're just going to call you crazy. Well, I took the 10 sites that he told me about, and I've got all the material and papers and, and data on those sites. And by the time I'd finished in two weeks, I had a list of over 500 sites because every paper I read talked about other sites. And then I would get that book and that paper, and I would study that site. And But, you know, when I graduated, I had a list of over 500 sites. I now have a list of over 5,000 sites. And my new database will have 600 sites that I've thoroughly examined all of the data and, and a lot of the artifacts for a lot of those sites. So... There's no denying any longer that people were here probably, I say, before the last glacial maximum began, because also in some of the languages, like in the Cree language, there's a phrase that means when the ice went home. So if you didn't see glaciers retreating, you might not know, you might not have that phrase. So I'm beginning to look now at indigenous languages to look for those key phrases that, I, that identify Pleistocene species and Pleistocene events, and actually environmentalists and geographers have been doing the same thing and, and getting data that uh, indigenous oral traditions completely support the floods and the um, volcanic activities on the West Coast at seven and 8,000 years ago. Okay. Um, it's customary for us to give our guests the last word on the show. Paulette, we have a minute left. Why do you uh, think about knowing about the Paleolithic history in Western Hemisphere is relevant in today's world? So what people think about indigenous people comes from what they're taught. So if you expand your understanding and your worldview, that pushes back on racism and discrimination, and it pushes back on people who make decisions on policies and decisions on land claims. And so it's very important for people to decolonize their minds and to learn all of this new information and to get a really good understanding of how deeply connected to the land indigenous people are. Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 501st show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley, and we would like to thank our noted guest, Dr. Paulette Steves, Associate Professor in Sociology and Anthropology and Chair of the Geography, Geology, and Land Management Program at Algoma University, who talked to us about her book, the Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere. The history buffs for today's show were Jay Swords and Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.